If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Luke. Yes. Oh, here's my little Latin declensions. I'm studying Latin wherever I go. So uh, that's what that is. These are the singular for regis virtuitas hominis captura. Okay, there you go. Luke chapter 3. As you're turning there, let me just publicly give a thanks to Brenda, uh, who preached last week. Can can that gal preach or what? She is just, I just love that woman. She just just lays it out. Man, that's good. That's good preaching. Uh, But uh, I I appreciate her her filling in, uh, but it's always good to be back here. Uh, And what we do here at Woodland Hills, if you're visiting, is, is we just... Uh, nothing, you know, nothing extraordinary, uh, nothing fancy. We just open the Bible and we study it verse by verse uh, because this is God's word and we take it seriously and we want to apply it to our life. So that's what this is all about. Luke chapter 3. And I'm entitling this, we're going to look at 10 verses here this morning, and I'm entitling this Baptized into the Revolution. Now, when I say baptized in the revolution, and this is as good a time as any to make this disclaimer, The revolution I'm talking about is not the revolution that Americans are celebrating this weekend. That's the American Revolution, okay? And that's a good thing. That's fine. Fourth of July, fireworks and all that. The Kingdom Revolution isn't that. And this is why I get asked this all the time on July 4th weekend. uh, You know, why don't we have the flags in here and sing patriotic songs and whatever? And it's because Fourth of July, while it's an American holiday and, and we're as patriotic as anybody and go out and see the fireworks and celebrate freedom and all that, But July 4th isn't a kingdom. It's not a Christian holiday. Uh, The American Revolution, like most revolutions, happened by overthrowing another government. It happened with violence and things of that sort. It was a power over revolution. And good things came of it. Good things sometimes come out of revolutions. But the revolution that's going on in this world that that unites us together, it's not the flag that unites us, it's the cross. And uh, uh, the revolution that's going on that, that, that we're all a part of here, if your life is surrendered to Jesus Christ, is a revolution that always looks like Jesus. It's a Jesus-looking revolution because it's spreading a Jesus-looking kingdom. And it always has a Calvary flavor to it. We spread God's kingdom in this world not by having power over others, but by exercising power under others. It's the power of self-sacrificial love. It's the power of service. It's the power of humility. And our one job in life is to spread that kingdom at all times and all places to all people, no ifs, ands, and buts. And so the kingdom revolution is very different from the American revolution or any other kind of revolution, and we just go out of our way to keep those two things uh, separate. So celebrate the 4th of July if you want to, but what we're here to do is to celebrate the cross and to celebrate the kingdom of God. Amen. Luke chapter 3. I've got uh, two points that will be uh, carved out around two sections of scripture that we'll be studying here. Uh, The first is the the first four verses. Luke chapter 3, we'll start with verse 3. In the first two verses... As I said two weeks ago, Luke uses the dignitaries of his day simply as calendar props because they're not really centrally important to what God's up to in this world. Uh, And from those calendar props, what we get is that these events are happening between 27 and 28 AD. And then Luke says this, John, that's John the Baptist, went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Pause for a moment here just to review. What we saw last week was this, or two weeks ago. Um, There were, in the two centuries leading up to the time of Christ, there was a growing awareness that something is happening. God's getting prepared to do something new in this world. There's a new age coming, a new era is coming. The Lord is going to come to earth. Uh, And some people, as they were getting this awareness, 
noticed in the Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter 40, that uh, there's a prophecy that the Lord will come in the wilderness, and that people are to, to go out in the wilderness and to prepare a way for the Lord. And so we know from history that there were several groups, communities of people, who moved out into the wilderness, which was the, the Jordan region outside of Jerusalem, and uh, formed like monastic communities as they were waiting for the Lord to return. And what they all had in common is that they would practice baptism as the initiation rite into this end times community. Most scholars believe that John the Baptist had some relationship with one of those communities. The most famous of these communities were the Essenes. And they were the ones that collected this library of books that we discovered in 1947 uh, that's called the Dead Sea Scrolls. The, the, that's the, the, the discovery of books that Dan Brown in the Da Vinci Code all screws up. Uh, but, but they're the most famous of these desert groups, but there's a, there's a number of other ones around there. And John, his message is very much in, very consistent with the message of those groups. Then John says here, just by way of review, that it says that he was practicing a baptism of repentance. Now the word baptism comes from the Greek word baptizo, which means to dip or to immerse. The word repentance is simply the Greek word metanoia, which means to turn around. So what the original audience would hear Luke saying here is this. John was out in the wilderness dipping people in water for a turnaround. He was dipping for a turnaround. As people turned their lives around, they would be dipped in water as a way of signifying that they've been turned around. The turning around is turning from a life of self-centeredness to God's way of doing life and in all that that entails. And then Luke tells us here that that, ba that baptism for a turnaround was, uh, was for the forgiveness of sins. And what that means is this. The turning, the metanoia, that's manifested in the dipping, the baptizo, brings about the forgiveness of sins. Now I say that to say this. Neither Luke nor any other New Testament author nor any other Jew in the first century would have ever dreamed that the baptism brings about the forgiveness of sins apart from the turning around. It's not that baptism is a magical rite that washes away your sins. Rather, it's the turning of a heart towards God, submitting towards God, and then manifesting it in baptism that brings about the forgiveness of sins. That's why, for example, you could have a man like the thief on the cross who at the last minute of his life surrenders his life to, to Christ, and Jesus says, uh, you'll be with me today in, in, in paradise. Even though he couldn't get baptized, he was still saved, he still had the forgiveness of sins because his heart had been turned around. Okay, that's all by way of review. Let's move on to the next couple of verses. As it is written, Luke says, in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. These are just Old Testament metaphors for bringing justice in the world. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways shall be made smooth, and all, God's, and all people will see God's salvation. Okay, let's break it down. It says here that John was saying that we're to make straight paths for the Lord. Prepare a way for the Lord and make it straight. And the metaphor that John the Baptist is, is, is creating here is this. There's a king who's coming to his city, and the, the job of the people is to prepare a roadway for him. So he doesn't have to go over the sand dunes on a horse without a roadway. We want to make a roadway for him, and we want him to make it straight. We want to make it easy for him. And so 
were to prepare a roadway in the wilderness for the Lord to come back. That's what John the Baptist was preaching. That's what all these desert communities believed they were doing. They were, they were making a way for the Lord to return or to come to this world. Now, John and all these other monastic communities out in the desert here, and, and in fact, all Jews at the time, believed that when the Messiah came in the wilderness, that he would immediately bring down every mountain. He would, he would immediately fill every valley. They thought he would immediately make straight every crooked road. They thought he would immediately uh, uh, make smooth every rough road. In other words, they thought immediately God would bring his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And they thought that, that, uh, that the Messiah would then, with military might, overthrow the Romans and, and, and restore Israel to sovereign status and eradicate all injustice in the world. They thought that would happen immediately. Now, as we look back on this from the perspective of, of people who come after the time of Christ, and as we look at the whole New Testament, what we discover is this. The people who got this intuition that the Lord was coming in the wilderness, wilderness were right in one respect, but were mistaken in another respect. They were right in this respect. They, they, the Lord was coming. And in fact, John the Baptist was God's ordained person to point out that uh, the Messiah was here. The Lord did meet them in the wilderness because the Lord is Jesus Christ. But they were mistaken in another respect. Uh, what we learn in the New Testament is that the coming of the Lord and the building of the kingdom is not instantaneous. Uh, there's actually two aspects to the Lord bringing his kingdom to this earth to make the earth the way he always wanted it to be. There's two aspects to it. And like bookmarkings, they're, they're held together by a first coming and a second coming. It's really one aspect of one coming, but it's got two different segments to it. The Lord would come the first time, we learn in the New Testament, in a humble way to inaugurate the kingdom. And then his people are to build the kingdom, and the kingdom grows like a mustard seed, as Jesus taught. It's a subversive, quiet kingdom, not a lot of fanfare about this, doesn't even usually look like we're winning. But the kingdom is growing one soul at a time as people replicate uh, what Jesus did for them as they do it in their life, the kingdom grows. And every time, with every act of, of, of Christ-likeness, with every soul that comes under the dominion of the king and the kingdom grows, we are laying the runway strip for the Lord to come back. To modernize uh, John the Baptist's metaphor, it's like we're laying down a runway strip so the Lord can land here and set up his kingdom once and for all. But there's two aspects to that. And there's coming a time when the Lord will return again, and now he'll finish up the work that he began with his first coming, and the work that his, his people have been continuing throughout this world. Here's a chart that might help you contrast the way the New Testament presents the end times as opposed to the way most Jews in the first century saw it. The traditional Jewish view is this. Human beings fell, we rebelled against God. That means we came under bondage to Satan. So they referred to this era as this, the, the present evil age. They were looking forward to a time when the Messiah would return. And they believed that when the Messiah returned, he would immediately bring about the age to come, what they called the age to come, which was the kingdom of God, when God would again reign on this earth. That was the customary Jewish view. What we learn in the New Testament is this. There was a fall, which, as the Jewish view held, uh, brought us under bondage to the principalities and powers, which is why the Bible says that Satan is Lord of this, uh, God of this age. The Messiah comes, that's what Jesus did the first time, and he brings his kingdom, and so in one sense, the age to come is now. But in another sense, the world is still in bondage, because the mustard seed that he plants with his first coming needs to grow. 
He'll return, and that's when he'll reap the harvest. When he'll now bring, now is when he'll, he'll uh, bring down every mountain. Now is the second coming, when he'll fill every valley, make straight every crooked path. With that second coming, uh, God will bring the, make the world the way the world is uh, supposed to be. With that second coming is when the kingdom will come in all of its fullness. So you can contrast the two comings this way. When the Lord comes the first time, he begins the revolution. And if you're surrendered to Jesus Christ, you're part of this revolution. You're not part of a religion. You're part of a revolution. Because it's, it, it's revolutionizing the world. When he comes the second time, that's when he's going to consummate the revolution. You might think of the first coming as D-Day. Uh, D-Day is Normandy Beach, June 6th in the Second World War. And historians tell us that on D-Day, when we won that battle, the, the, the war was in principle ended. But it still took a year of important battles to fight before V-Day was declared. That's Victory Day. So also the Lord coming the first time is D-Day. He deals a death blow to the enemy. His fate is sealed. The, the, the seed is planted. But we're still waiting for, for V-Day, and that will happen when the Lord returns a second time. When he comes the first time, he, he is victorious in principle, but when he comes the second time, he'll be victorious as manifested fact. He'll manifest what was in principle true already. And in fact, kingdom people, our job in life is to, in every area of our life, strive to manifest as fact what was true in principle in Calvary. You see, we take the victory of Calvary and we try to apply it to every area of our life to manifest it. That's our job as kingdom people. When the Lord comes the first time, he plants a seed. He calls it a mustard seed. It's the smallest of all seeds. It grows subversively underground, but eventually it will take over the whole garden. He plants the seed, and it's growing in each one of our, our, of our hearts. But when he comes the second time, this is when he's going to reap the harvest. There's a time to sow and a time to reap. The time to reap is coming. The first time the Lord comes, he comes in mercy. In fact, it's outrageous mercy. He opens up uh, against all of the traditional uh, uh, conceptions of what it is to be a, a child of the king. Uh, Jesus comes and he opens up this door and he says, anybody who wants can come in. Ali, Ali, in free. Uh, God will have mercy on you. There's no ifs, there's no ands, there's no buts. Whatever your history is, whatever your situation is, whatever your struggles are, you can be a child of the king just by submitting to him. It's an age of unprecedented mercy. And that's how the kingdom is growing, but that age will come to an end. And that will happen when he returns a second time. The second time, he comes in judgment. Because when you reap the harvest, and we'll see this later on in Luke chapter 3, you burn up everything that's not consistent with the harvest. It'll be a time of judgment. When he came the first time, he came in a lowly form. He, al he allows himself to be crucified to express God's love towards all people and ascribe unsurpassable worth even to his enemies. But when he comes the second time, the era is being brought to a close, and now he doesn't come in this lowly way. He comes triumphant. When the Lord returns the second time, and I assure you, he is going to return. There's no question about that. No one knows when. No one knows exactly how. And I wouldn't give a whole lot of attention to that. Just know this. He's going to return. And when he does, this is where everything that is inconsistent with the kingdom of God will be cast out. Uh, when he comes the second time, this is where he'll fill every valley and tear down every rebellious mountain and make straight every crooked road. When he comes the second time, this is where he's going to rid the world of everything that's not consistent with his character so that the entire creation becomes the dome in which he is king, the kingdom of God. 
When he comes the second time, this is where he's going to get rid of all violence. He's going to get rid of all hatred. He's going to get rid of all war. When he comes the second time, he's going to get rid of all greed. He's going to get rid of all racism. He's going to get rid of all the nationalism and all the things that have divided humanity. When he comes the second time, he's going to tear down every wall that human beings have ever used to construct uh, uh, divisions among people. When he comes the second time, he's going to get rid of poverty. He's going to get rid of sickness. He's going to get rid of disease. And everything, everything that's inconsistent with his character in the kingdom is going to be done away with. And that's why it's, it's, a, it's, it's good news if you're a kingdom person. It's judgment news if you're not. And I say all that to say this. This era of unprecedented mercy is going to come to a close. We don't know when, but it will come to a close. And I encourage you, I implore you, if your life isn't surrendered to the king, to do that. To be ready for his return. Uh, it's good news to the kingdom person. We long for this day. Uh, you know, in the New Testament, they pray, Lord, come quickly. Because you're just sick and tired of the mindless loss of life, the violence, the, the, the injustices of the world, the oppression of the world, the rebellion of the world, and, and the pain of the world. You're tired of it, and you want to see God come and set up his beautiful kingdom. But see, if you're not aligned with the king, that news is not necessarily good news to you, is it? Uh, because everything that's not consistent is cast away and burned up. It's very easy to make it good news for you, and that is to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. Accept his mercy and join the revolution. Baptism is simply the sign that you've done that. Baptism is, 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 is God's ordained covenantal sign that you've turned. You've turned in your heart. You've surrendered your life to the king. And now you're washed and ready for the king to return. Baptism is also something else, however. It is the covenantal sign that not only are you individually ready, but that you've joined the community of those who are still out in the wilderness preparing a way for the Lord. You are now one of the ones that is preparing the way for the Lord. And that leads me to the second group of passages I want to uh, preach on. Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. Man, it's hot in here. Now I want to ask somebody for a handkerchief. I tell you, first mince in a handkerchief. Anyone got anything? I'm getting sweat in my eyes and it burns. Anyone got a handkerchief? Uh, preferably not a used one. Uh, that would be kind of gross. Especially since we got Shayla here. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that, that's good. Oh, this is so cool. I, I, I could wear this. I could, like, have a bandana. <laughs> hey, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. You'll probably want to wash this when uh, you get it back, all right? But you've got to remind me to get it back. I'll confess I have klepto tendencies. People give me things, and I never get them back. So it's on you to get this uh, wonderful uh, handkerchief back. All right, here we go. Uh, Luke chapter 3. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, Surgeon General's warning here, pastoral warning, if you came to get your ears massaged, this isn't going to be your message, all right? Uh, it's going to get kind of tough right now. Uh, it's because we go verse by verse, and this is in the Bible, so we got to preach it, okay? So uh, do you want to hear it straight? Do you want to hear the straight word? Of, uh, 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 do you want, are you okay with that? You tough enough? Truth! Can you handle the truth? <laughs> All right, here's some truth. John said to them, you brought of vipers. <laughs> Lovely. A little teaching moment here. Uh, John here is, uh, he is a Jewish prophet talking to Jewish leaders primarily in this verse. Vipers is an Old Testament metaphor for, for leaders who spread poison and mislead the flock. 
All that John says here in terms of confronting these leaders presupposes uh, a covenantal, an Old Testament covenantal context where the leaders understand that the job of a prophet is to confront them in very strong terms. So they understand what's going on. I say all that to say this. Don't use John the Baptist in this passage as your paradigm for evangelism today, all right? <laughs> going, there are people who do this. You go out on street corners and start calling people vipers or, or something of that sort. If you want to know how to evangelize people who aren't under this Old Testament covenant, go to Acts 17 and look at the kind and gentle way that Paul interacts with these Gentiles. That's how you, you evangelize in, in the New Testament time. But we're still dealing with people who are in this covenantal context. So John says, you, you brought of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath. That's that judgment thing I just talked about. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And listen to this. Don't even begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I'll tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. It's going to be burned up. What should we do, the crowd asked, and John answered. Anyone who's got two shirts should share with the one who's got none. And anyone who's got food should share with those who don't have any. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. Okay, let's break this down. Let's break this down. John the Baptist here is simply in a, a different way saying, get ready. The king is coming. We're laying down the runway strip for him. He's going to show up at any time. We don't know when. But when he does, you got to know this. you got to be ready. So get yourself ready. Turn from your present way of living and turn to God's way of living, which is about sharing what you've got, which is about not cheating people. Now, why does John say produce fruit that's fitting for repentance? And why does John say don't even think about saying we have Abraham as our father? Here's why. We know that in the first century, a lot of Jewish leaders, and therefore a lot of other people who are following their leading, they put their trust in their nationality and in their religious observations. These people would say we're ready for God to show up anytime because, hey, we are, after all, Jews. We have Abraham as our father. Where are the chosen people? And just by virtue of being born as a Jew, that's good enough. And we keep religious observations. We keep the Sabbath. We keep the laws. Those ungodly Gentiles don't do that. So we're ready because, we, we've, 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 uh, because of our nationality and our religious observations. We keep the religious Sabbath and things of that sort. And what John is saying here is this. Don't even begin to think that way. He says, look. If God was, if it was all about your nationality, and if it was all about keeping a couple of religious observances, well, the God could make stones do that. What God wants is the one thing God can't do with stones, and that is he wants your heart. He wants you in the core of your being to turn, to make a choice and turn from getting life from your religion and start getting your life from God. Turn from your self-centered way of doing life to a God-centered way of life. Turn from your unjust, unjust practices and turn and start practicing justice. Turn from your hoarding ways of doing life and start sharing with others. What God wants is for you to choose to surrender your life to him. He can't make rocks do that. It wouldn't be real then. And what God wants is for you to choose to manifest that truth by obeying him, by being baptized. But it's got to be real. It's got to be real. And that's why John the Baptist then adds this little uh, ditty about axes being laid to the root of the trees. What John is saying is this. Uh, a real fruit tree brings forth real fruit. That's how you know it's a real fruit tree. If you're not bringing forth fruit, if it's not real, 
then the only thing you're good for is to be cut down and used as firewood. Real trees, real fruit trees are supposed to bring forth real fruit. It's not enough that you happen to right now look something like a fruit tree, and it's not enough that your dad was a fruit tree. Uh, the question is, are you a real fruit tree? Because if you're a real, real fruit tree, you're going to bring forth fruit. Now, John isn't saying, on your own self-will, crank out fruit, and then you'll become a real fruit tree. See, that's works righteousness. You can't do that. But what John is saying is that if you are a real fruit tree, then bring forth the fruit that's fitting for a real fruit tree. And how do you become a real fruit tree? You turn. You surrender your life to God. You start living life God's way. And the evidence of that, the fruit that comes out, is stuff like this. When you've got more than you need and there's people around you who have less than you need, you share what you've got with others. If you've got two shirts and someone's got none, give them one of your shirts. If you've got extra food and some people don't have enough food, give them some food. And what it looks like to turn and live life God's way is uh, you have integrity. You don't cheat. Even if it's to your own advantage, you don't cheat. See, th this confronts uh, something. In our, in our hyper-individualistic Western culture, we've sort of individualized repentance. And repentance just means sort of at your bedside saying, I'm sorry, and maybe feeling a little re regret over something, which is a good start. But see, turning your life is turning your life, and you can't turn your life without, without it impacting how you treat other people, how you relate to other people. It's a, there's a community dimension to repentance. So the way you treat your neighbor, the way you treat your brother and sister, the way you treat your wife and kids, everything is affected when you turn, when you really turn. It has community ramifications. Now, the particular, uh, the particular words that John uses here are, are uh, presuppose an Old Testament context that doesn't apply today. But this message is so crucial for American Christians to hear. Because as I see it, we've got a whole lot of people who are going around with the mindset saying, I've got Abraham as my father or something like that. Maybe not, I've got Abraham as my father, so I'm okay, but, you know, hey, I've got the Pope as my father, so I'm okay. I was raised Catholic, so I'm okay. Or people saying, you know, I was raised in a Lutheran church. I got Luther as my father. I've got Lutheran heritage, so I'm okay. People saying, hey, I'm a Baptist, glory to God, and, and I've got the Baptist, uh, Anabaptist as my, 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 my father. I've got a good inheritance. I was raised the right way, and therefore I know that I'm ready. Tons of people saying that. Other people are saying, I know I'm ready because I've done a couple of religious observances. I, I go to church every Easter and, and every Christmas. Or, or people relying on a kind of magical prayer. I, say, I said the sinner's prayer eight years ago. And, and so they, they think that they're ready. But what John the Baptist is saying here is this. You can't inherit the kingdom. You can't crank out the kingdom on your own. You can't, uh, you know, it's not enough that, that once in a while there's something that looks like kingdom activity. You've got to be part of the kingdom. And the way you become part of the kingdom is by, in reality, in the core of your being, turning your heart and surrendering your life to God. But all over the place in America, we've got people who think they can inherit the kingdom. You're riding on the coattail of, of, of how you were raised or a religious prayer that you prayed or some religious observance that, that you en engage in. Uh, I, I just read a couple days ago a report from uh, George Barna. Uh, the, the report's actually seven years old, but uh, he, he did a study. It was a follow-up on a Billy Graham crusade. And what he found there was this. Over 90% of the people who made decisions in this, in this crusade, one year later, there was absolutely no discernible difference in their life. Uh, in, in terms of you know, praying, in terms of how they treat people, in terms of of how they live and what they do with their resources and in terms of, of going to church, in terms of everything. Their life was exactly the same one year after their decision for Christ than it, as it was a year before their decision, except for maybe one thing. And that is that some of these people probably thought that now they're ready because they prayed a magical prayer at a Billy Graham crusade. And I know thank God for the 10% for whom it meant something. 
But see, th this is kind of what scares me, to be honest with you. This is why whenever I you know, ask for people to, you know, if, if you want to surrender your life to Christ and to raise your hand as a pledge, I go out of my way to make sure that they understand this isn't a magical fire insurance prayer. That this is, this is saying wedding vows, and don't do it unless you're committing your life. Because the last thing I want is somebody walking out of here, and they haven't turned their life, but they have a kind of false assurance that now they're all okay, when in fact they're not. That's irresponsible on our part. Repentance is turning. It's turning your life. It's not a magical prayer. It's not about an inheritance. It's not about who your mom or dad is. It's about genuinely in the core you're being turning. And when you genuinely turn, there's fruit. You turn from your old way of living to a new way of living. You turn from hoarding your goods to sharing your goods. You turn from not caring about others to caring about others. You turn from not caring about the poor to caring about the poor. You turn from not being greedy to, uh, you turn from being greedy to not being greedy. You turn from being dishonest to being honest. You turn to live God's way of doing life, which is about love, which is about outrageous generosity, which is about speaking truth. And see, when the turning is genuine and you start living in that mode, now you are part of the community of those who are laying down the runway strip for the Lord to return. Every act of, of, of Christ-likeness, every kingdom act, every aspect of your life that is surrendered to the king is another brick in the foundation for the Lord to return. You are now preparing the way of the Lord. And it's not just you individually, it's a community thing because the repentance is a community thing. We together are the, a billboard for what God is up to in this world. Our life to the degree that it's surrendered, is an advertisement of a kingdom that's coming, of a different kind of a king, a different way of doing life, a different way of thinking, a different way of looking at others, a different way of treating others. It's a billboard for that, and we're laying down the runway for the Lord to return. To be committed to the kingdom means this. You're committed to manifesting now everything that will be true when the Lord returns. You are a slice of the coming kingdom here and now. You are, as we sometimes say, the already amidst the not yet. And that's why the Bible calls us first fruits. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you are the first fruits. The first fruits were the, were the, was the part of the crop that was picked ahead of time. You ripened early. And you were evidence that there's a coming harvest. You show the corn that's still in the husk what it is to be, uh, to, to be real corn. You advertise your yellowness. And that attracts other corn to get ripe and, and let themselves get picked. And now the analogy is getting a little bit weird. But, but uh, uh, and it's first fruits, not first vegetables. So I had to really screw it up from the very beginning. But see, th this is the job of kingdom people. Here's what we're about. It's not about religious stuff. It's about, it's about how we live. When the kingdom comes, when the Lord comes the second time and sets up his kingdom, there won't be any dishonesty. So what it means to belong to the king is that you commit to living honestly now. When, when the Lord comes back that second time, he's going to tear down every mountain of rebellion, so we commit to tearing down mountains of rebellion right now. When the Lord comes back and sets up his kingdom, he's going to make straight every crooked road, so we commit to making uh, crooked roads straight right here and right now. We manifest that this new age is already upon us and, and is being manifested in us. And, and uh, when the Lord comes the second time and sets up his kingdom, he's going to fill every valley of despair, so we commit to filling up valleys of despair right here and right now. When the Lord returns, everything that's not consistent with his beautiful character will be eradicated. So we try to eradicate everything in our life that's not consistent with his beautiful character, and we do it right here and right now with the fruits, fruit, first fruits of the king, coming kingdom. When the Lord comes the second time and sets up his kingdom, there'll be no more violence. So we pledge to eradicate all violence from our hearts right here and right now. 
When the Lord returns the second time, as I've already said, he'll get rid of all hatred. So we commit to purging hatred in our life right here and right now. When the Lord comes, his, his love shall reign over every square inch of the earth. So we commit to letting his love reign over every square inch of our life right here and right now. When the Lord comes, he's going to just abolish all racism. So we're people who commit to get, get, purging out all racism in our own life right here and right now. And manifesting that in every way, shape, and form that we can. When the Lord returns the second time in the kingdom of heaven, there'll be no greed, so we, we commit to get rid of all greed right, right here and right now. Our job is to be heaven on earth, a, a window into the future, the first fruits of the coming harvest. When the Lord returns, when the Lord returns, he's going to eradicate all sickness and disease. So we commit to coming against, in Jesus' name and in the power of God, all sickness and disease right here and right now. Because our commitment, our turning, this is what it means to turn. Our turning is to manifest in the already what is not yet true around the world. And our act of doing so is what lays down the runway strip. And there is coming a time when the Lord sees that the runway strip is sufficiently laid, and now it's time to trolley in on the earth and set up his kingdom once and for all. This is what repentance looks like. The meaning of the term is shown by the fruit it has in our life. And we do that in our lives individually. We do it in how we relate to one another. And now you're, 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 you're part of the community of those who, like John the Baptist, are making a way for the Lord, proclaiming the coming kingdom, and it is going to happen. And baptism is simply our way, it's God's ordained way of declaring that you yourself are making yourself ready. You yourself have been washed with this end times washing, and you're part of the community of those who have committed their life to laying down the runway strip for the Lord to return when he's going to set up his, his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And now the creation will be what God always wanted the creation to be. Now let me say one more word about this. And on the one hand, repentance is a, is a life-changing decision that we make. In the core of our being, we pledge to commit to living this. But you can't pledge to doing it perfectly because we're not perfect. In fact, I'll say this. On the one hand, repentance is something we do at a point in our life that changes the direction in our life. On the other hand, there's no person in this congregation or who's listening by any other media means who's perfectly turned. We're all, just as the Lord is building his kingdom through a process here on earth, he's building his kingdom in us as a process. And he's slowly ripping away the husk to manifest the real corn that we, that we are. And so repentance isn't just a one-time thing we do in, in the past, as though that itself was sort of a magical thing. It is a lifestyle. And so I encourage all of us to be always living in this question. Lord, what part of me isn't heavenly? What part of me is not consistent with your character? Maybe there are attitudes. Maybe there are behaviors. Maybe there are practices that we do that are not consistent. Maybe they've been part of our life all along. We haven't even noticed it. But in time, the Lord brings it to our awareness. And then what the Lord asks of you is to repent. You turn. doesn't mean that you're always sorrowful and have great grievance. You may have that, you may not. But it means you're aware, and now you turn from it. And all of our life, we're to be losing husks, letting the Holy Spirit rip off of us things that don't belong there. And we lay down the runway strip for the Lord to return. Would you close your eyes to pray?